And if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 23, Matthew 23, and again, we're continuing our look at the threefold office of Christ as he is both prophet, priest, and king. And we're going to make a few introductory remarks, go review a little bit of what we looked at the last time, and then what I want us to really focus on today is the contrast between Christ's words of authority and particularly the words of the scribes and the Pharisees of the religious leaders in his day. And again, why is it that Jesus speaks with authority? It's because he is the king. And as the king, he has the right, he has that authority to pronounce his edicts, to provide his word as the sovereign of the universe. And so we've looked at that kingly office both as that was what Adam and Eve were created for. They were called to exercise dominion over this world because of sin rather than exercising dominion over this world and exercising dominion over temptation and exercising dominion over the serpent and over over the devil himself. As a result of submitting themselves to the devil through his temptation, they end up abdicating their throne, the throne. And as a result of that, they lose this kingly office. But God provides a way in the curse reverser, the seed of the woman who will come and will be a king. And we saw that worked out as both um, as both. There were kingly features in, uh, Cain, or in Abel. There were kingly works in Noah and then particularly in Abraham as he acted as a, uh, as a patriarchal king. And then, of course, God establishes the kingly office in Israel after Israel seeks to go about it their own way, bringing disaster through uh, Saul's reign. And then there's the great promise that a king would come in David's line. And of course, as we've been looking now, Jesus is that king. He is the one who fulfills the prophecies of the king, and particularly the kingdom of David. But before we go any further, let's go ahead and read Matthew 23. We're going to be reading verses uh, 1 through uh, verses 36. So Matthew 23, we'll read this and then we'll go before the Lord in prayer. Then Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples... The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and at the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, For you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? For whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by Him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up. Then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barakiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar truly I say to you all these things will come upon this Generation. And let's finish out the chapter. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children 
together. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you particularly for Christ's words here that are sobering and somber. Father, we thank you that he gives us his word as a means to revealing in our own hearts the areas in which we are like the scribes and the Pharisees. And Father, there's much to learn here tonight, and we certainly will not exhaust the depths of this last public servant sermon of your Son, but Lord, I pray that we would be impressed in our hearts by your Spirit with the truth that we find therein. Work in our midst as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So again, we're looking at Jesus as king, and we, have, we began looking at his kingly office displayed in a number of different aspects. We saw his kingship is displayed in his incarnation. He's identified as the eternal son of God. He ties his birth as king, Jeremiah ties his birth as king to the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. And Gabriel, when she announces to Mary that she's going to give birth, that she's going to conceive, he speaks of his role as king. The Magi come from the east and they're looking and they want to worship him who was born king of the Jews. And even Herod recognizes this. Even though he's the figurehead king at that time, he sees the birth of Christ as a threat to his own reign and so he seeks to snuff him out. He ends up doing atrocities to maintain his own sovereignty. And so he views Jesus as a threat to his reign. Then we saw Jesus display his kingship in his temptation. And what separates Christ here as king from Adam and Eve when they were um, created to be kings is that they did not cede the throne. Or Jesus did not cede the throne. They did. And particularly at each point, as Satan tempted Christ, he tempted him in regards to his kingship. He's king of creation. Command the stones to become bread. He's king over the spiritual realm. Exercise dominion over the angels. Cast yourself off. The angels have to bear you up. And then he offers Christ the kingdoms of this world and says, if you just bow down to me, if you just recognize me as a more superior king than you, then I'll give you everything you've come here to save. And of course, the devil is tempting Christ with something that the devil does not own. And Christ displays dominion over the devil by doing two things. He refuses his temptations, and then he tells the devil, go away. And what does the devil do? He, he goes away. Thank you, Siri, for the explanation of who the devil is. <laughs> I, never, I never knew I'd be co-preaching with Siri. That's, that's interesting. If you're watching online, we had a, a phone decide to uh, tell us who Satan was. So, 
So we see his kingship displayed in his temptation. We also see his kingship, particularly in his public acts of ministry. We see his kingship over creation. He's able to turn water into wine. He's able to heal those who have maladies. He's able uh, to do amazing things. He's able to raise the dead. Not only does he have kingship over creation, he also has kingship over the spiritual world. The demons see him. He comes. We read this this morning in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus comes and this devil says, are you here to destroy us? They recognize who he is. And he tells them, be quiet and cast the demon out of the man. And then we see the reality that Jesus' kingship was evident to others, that it was obvious that there was something different. There was something authoritative about Christ in his ministry. And so we've seen these things, his birth, his, um, his temptation, and then in his ministry, his public acts in his ministry show his kingship. But one thing we must never forget, and I think it's a temptation uh, of us, and it's easy for us to get focused on the miraculous acts that Jesus did. I mean, I mean, it is miraculous, all right? He took, he literally took the ingredients that he used to create man, right? Man's created out of what? Earth, the dust of the earth. There's this blind man. He reaches down into the dust, spits in it, creates essentially new eyes, puts them on this blind man, tells him to wash, and what happens to the blind man? He sees. I mean, if there has ever been an indication that Jesus is God, it's that miracle. He does this in such a way to show this amazing power. But his power, those miracles are given not to garner people to come and follow him just because of what he can do for them. In fact, one of the reasons why Jesus became very popular, why thousands upon thousands of people would follow him, is because he was able to take five loaves and two fishes and feed thousands of people. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to sign up for that literal gravy train, right? And it, yet it becomes the, the point, the sticking point for those crowds comes down not to what Jesus can do for them, but rather to what Jesus says. And it is His words which carry authority, the authority of a king that become offensive to the crowds. And while He has these great crowds following them, He calls them, using bombastic language to shock them into understanding these things. But he uses this language. He calls them to place radical dependence in him alone. And what do the crowds do? They leave him. And so what we find Jesus doing, his miraculous gifts, the things that he does that declare his kingship are given to show us that he has the right to speak authoritatively towards us. And so that's what we're going to look at this evening and next week is the words of Christ's kingdom or kingship. And in particular, there are two areas that we're going to focus on. This evening, we're going to look on the fact that Jesus taught with kingly authority. And the next week, Lord willing, we will look at how Jesus spoke 
and inaugurated the kingdom. The king was here. What has the king come to do? He's come to create a kingdom. But this evening we're looking at how Jesus taught with kingly authority. He spoke as one who had the right to demand of anyone what he demanded. He spoke with authority. And his authoritative teaching and preaching marveled the crowds. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Matthew 7 is at the, it comes after Matthew 5 and Matthew 6. All right, we got our math together, all right? And Matthew 5, 6, and 7, does anyone know what we call that passage? The Sermon on the Mount. And it really is, the, for Matthew's gospel, it really is the first major teaching of Christ. It is, in many regards, the greatest sermon ever preached. And what we just read in Matthew 23 was the last of Jesus' public sermons. And so in both, both his first sermon and his last sermon, we see him dealing with the issue of authority. Now, again, the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, as we come to the end of that, Matthew makes this comment. He says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They're astonished at what he was teaching. They were marveling at this sermon. Why? What was it that drew their their attention? Well, it was because he taught as one who had authority. And this very clearly contrasted what they had been getting from their scribes. He taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It's just interesting to note here that the effect on the crowds when they heard the message of Christ, when they heard the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew doesn't note right away that there were wholesale conversions. You know, this is, this is something that I have to keep constantly in front of my mind as I, as I stand and proclaim the Word of God every week. You know, we don't have hordes of people coming down the aisle every week to be saved, and sometimes that can be discouraging from that perspective. But the greatest sermon ever preached, the only response was, wow, this guy speaks with authority. There was something undeniable about what Jesus said that he had the right to say what he said. There was something tangibly evident to the crowds about his teaching. His authority was real authority. And he contrasts this with the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious rulers and the Pharisees of that day, they contrived their own authority. They seek to set it up by looking and placing themselves as the authority, speaking of their traditions as the authority. And so what we find Jesus doing is He rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees and what we see here in Matthew chapter 23. And again, both Jesus' first and last public sermons touched on the same subject, His authority. Jesus, the one who has the right to say what He was saying, and the scribes and Pharisees who had no right to say what they were saying. 
Now, what is it that Jesus points out here? And that's where we come to Matthew 23. Um, as you read through this, and as we read through this, Jesus doesn't really mince his words, does he? He's not very concerned with the um, feelings of the scribes and the Pharisees here. He calls them uh, a brood of vipers. He calls them serpents. He calls them children of hell. And he speaks of the fact that there will be a day in which the blood of all of the prophets is actually falling on them because they continue in the vein of God's people in killing those whom God had sent to them. And of course, we see this played out. Christ is speaking prophetically here because as he says this, just a a few days later, what are, what are the crowds in Jerusalem, and particularly, what are the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem going to do? They're going to crucify him. They're going to go to a heathen king. They're going to go to Pilate and say, yeah, he's, he's making himself to be king. You know, if the, the implications of what Jesus said was not lost on the scribes and Pharisees. They understood that he made claims of being the Messiah and of being the genuine king of Israel. And they used that against him before Pilate so that Pilate would kill him. And in fact, Pilate comes out and says, well, would you, would you really want me to kill your king? And the response of crowds and particularly the scribes and Pharisees is, we have no king but Caesar. And so, again, Christ's words here in Matthew 23 are prophetic. Again, in Christ's first sermon, He displays His divine kingly authority. In His last sermon, He rebukes the self-centered and self-aggrandizing authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. So, let's look through this. Now, there's a lot in Matthew 23, and there's no way we're going to be able to comprehensively address this. Um, if I were to going to be, I've actually thought about preaching through this, just this one chapter, and it would probably take us several months to get through everything that Jesus says here. So I want us to get sort of the, the 30,000 foot view, the flyover view of what Jesus is saying and his words of rebuke towards the scribes and the Pharisees. And again, what he is doing here is he pronounces these eight woes on the scribes and Pharisees because he's getting at the fact that they lack real authority. That what they're saying, they don't have the right to say. Why did they lack real authority? Well, first of all, Jesus points out that their authority was not genuine because they preached but did not practice. Look at what he says here in verses uh, one through um, verses one through four. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat. So the first thing he points out is they are claiming authority, and they're claiming authority in line with what Moses said. In other words, they're saying we are the brokers of God's truth. And so Jesus says, they sit in Moses' seat, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not 
willing to move them with their finger. So there's actually what we have in Jesus' words here are two terms that have become sort of part of our conversation. You know, practice what you preach, and he won't even lift a finger, right? Both of those are here in the descriptions that Jesus is giving about the Pharisees. He speaks of how they would tie up heavy burdens. What would happen is these scribes and Pharisees, they would bring their traditions upon people. They would tie really heavy burdens upon them for the sake of them needing to come to the scribes and Pharisees to truly understand what was necessary. This continues today in the Jewish religion. I think some of you may have heard this story before, but when I was in South Carolina, um, I worked for a company, and, and part of my responsibilities is I would go over and take some uh, legal documents and get some things from the lawyer that we had that lived on my way home. And so um, this guy was a, uh, he was a, 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 a Jewish person. He had grown up his entire life going to synagogue. Um, and he had, was now essentially Jewish culturally, but he had no, it wanted nothing to do with the synagogue. And so he, I was talking to him, sharing the gospel with him, and he was explaining what it was like for him at the Jewish synagogue. He said after he had had his bar mitzvah and he was considered uh, a man of age where he could go in and sit with the men in, 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 in the teaching there, um, he said that they would split up and the women would go to one room and they would have their teaching there and the men would go to another room. And uh, the subject of that day, the Bible study at the synagogue that day, was, was considering a question. And here was the question. How many ladles of soup can a woman ladle, in, ladle from a bowl into other bowls on the Sabbath before it becomes work? Right? That was the discussion at that point. And it just shows the burden. I mean, does... The Bible just says, rest on the Sabbath day. Does it say anything about what that looks like exactly? How many ladles of soup you can take? No. But yet the burden that the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees had placed continues to this day so that people are now in their Bible studies concerned about how many times they can ladle soup out of a bowl into another bowl. And the thing about the Pharisees is they would bring these traditions, they tie up these heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they would only be applicable to the people who they were teaching. They stood above those things. They weren't susceptible. They weren't beholden to these things. They preached but did not practice. They put these heavy burdens on people's shoulders, but they themselves were not even willing to lift a finger to help those who were burdened by these things. This contrasts so clearly Christ. He comes to a people who have been burdened by the traditions of men for, for centuries. And he, he comes to them and He says, Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Anytime that men seek to assert their own authority in charging people to do certain things because of what they have said, they are 
placing heavy burdens on the backs of people that God himself never intends. So the authority was not genuine because they did not practice what they preached. Their authority, secondly, was not genuine because they sought the praise of men rather than the praise of God. We see this in verses 4 or 5 through 12. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And then he speaks about how they would do this. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And what is this being, these phylacteries and these fringes? Well, the, one of the things that would show a, a sense of, 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 uh, of zealousy in a particular person, a sense of, of someone who wanted to follow the Lord, is that they would have phylacteries that would be sort of hanging around their neck. And to make your phylactery broad wasn't necessary to make the phylactery bigger, but it would be to walk in such a way that it would be evident. They would also tie phylacteries on their arms, and they would, they would walk in such a way that it was evident that they had their phylacteries on. They would have very, very long fringes that were supposed to represent their commitment to the Lord. And so what they did is they literally dressed the part. In fact, Jesus calls them several times in this as he speaks the woes to them. He calls them scribes, Pharisees, and then he describes them with one word, hypocrites. That Greek word hypocrite literally means someone who plays a part. It's from the world of acting. And what does an actor do? He gets into character. He becomes someone that he truly, genuinely is not. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They made their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They wanted to be the ones recognized. You know, if it would be something that 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 this person, this Pharisee, this scribe, this religious leader would come to your house and feast with you, and and you would roll out the red carpet. They loved the red carpet to be rolled out for them. They wanted the best seats in the synagogues. Um, they wanted, I guess, in our day and age, it wouldn't be the prominent seats up front. It would be they would get the good seats in the back. Because <laughs> that's where everybody likes to sit, back row Baptist, right? And if you're sitting in the back, this isn't, this, I'm not trying to pick on you. But there are a lot of seats up closer. Anyways. You know, they wanted those special, they thought that they deserved those things. This, this was a problem even in um, Baptist churches in New England, even in, in old Puritan churches where uh, as things began to be corrupted more and more in the church, people would pay to have a row. And so you can actually go to churches in New England today where there are locks. There, there would be locks on the, the row, the pew, and one prominent family who had given a certain amount of money to that church, they would have the ones that would have, the only ones that would have access to that. I mean, in a lesser extent... I think we still carry this with us today because imagine you come in on a Sunday morning, maybe you get here a little bit later, and somebody is sitting in your seat. We have that same idea today. Oh, they must be a visitor. They don't understand. I'll make sure they understand next time. And I, I don't think we have people here that do that, but I've seen things like that happen. The Pharisees loved the seats of prominence. 
They love to be, verse 7, greeted in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. They love the, the clout and the social um, view that the world had about them. And so they, they loved and boasted of their accomplishments. They loved to be prominent in the community. They liked to be called father. They liked to be called instructor. They cast off humility in this life, and in so doing, they turned away from the exaltation that God grants to the humble. Look at the rest of this. Verse 8, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have, and here's the issue of authority. We have one instructor, the Christ. And so Jesus is coming right at the scribes and Pharisees, and he's saying, you have no right to tie these burdens on people's backs because you have no right to even call yourself an instructor. There is only one who has that authority, and it is the Christ. And so he rebukes them in verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you, the ones who will receive honor and glory from the Father, those are those who are your what? Servants. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks and warns his people about practicing your righteousness before other people so that they can see it. And if you are acting or doing these righteous deeds for the sake that other people will say it, then you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. This is something, particularly as Jesus is coming at the idea of helping other people for the sake of looking good. Our society feeds into this, don't they? I was, we were at the store. I can't remember which store it was, but we were at um, a store recently getting some stuff for VBS. And as we're checking out, there was the thing that came up. Would you like to donate a dollar, five dollars, or ten dollars, or whatever other amount to some fund that needed help. And so uh, we looked at what the fund was, and we said, okay, we'll, we'll, give, we'll give a dollar. I mean, it wasn't very much, just a dollar, but we figured we can do that. And then the lady, she's like, okay, and she starts, she reaches behind the counter, and she pulls out this piece of paper that looked like a balloon or whatever, and she's like, all right, I'm going to put your name on this. Like, no, I don't need my name on it for giving a dollar for, for this, this group. But yet, and then, then as, as you walked out of the place, you looked at the exit, and guess what you saw all around the exit? These posters of people's names who had given a dollar or more, who knows? Jesus does not want us to practice our 
righteousness, to give to the needy, to be involved in ministry for the sake of other people seeing it. If that's our motivation, then you know what? You'll get your reward. People will see it. They'll think well of you. But listen, that pales in comparison to receiving honor from the Father who is in heaven. And the Pharisees showed that their authority was not genuine because they ultimately lived not for the praise of God, but for the praise of men. Then we see Jesus coming into the woes in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What we find is their authority was not genuine because they shut the door on people's faces by requiring all manner of traditions to be kept. Again, notice what's said in verses in verse 15 as well. He speaks another word. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across the sea. You go across the land. And you say, I'm willing to do this just to make one single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, have you really improved him's life? No, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourself are. They required all manner of traditions to be kept. And in that way, by look, having people look not to the righteousness of the Messiah, but look to their own righteousness as the means of salvation, they shut the door on their faces. Jesus says in Mark 7, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so what essentially is happening here is they're, they're not quoting anything that's from the law. Now there were very clearly, ritual cleansings that were necessary for the priests as they would go in. And there were ways in which a person was supposed to cleanse themselves if they had become unclean. But if you're just going to McDonald's, I mean, I guess there weren't McDonald's in the first century, but if, if you're just going to eat, there's no requirement that you do some special washing. But, but here's, how this can, here's how this type of thing can really sneak in. Well, don't you want to really show your, your commitment to the Lord by washing your hands a certain way when you eat? I mean, you can, yes, you don't necessarily have to do it, but, but doesn't it really show that you're a zealous believer if you wash your hands a certain way? And let me tell you what that certain way is. You see how, I mean, that sounds good, right? Well, if, if, I'm, supposed to, if I'm supposed to do it when I become unclean, well, I guess I can sort of preventively keep myself from being unclean and just make sure I didn't miss anything and wash in a traditional way. And so that's what the scribes and Pharisees say. Come to the Christ and to his disciples. Listen, they're not walking according to our traditions. And so the issue was not the authority of what God had said. The issue was their own authority. And so what did Jesus say? It's amazing here. Jesus appeals to what God's authority has spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? 
as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of who? Men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. What a rebuke on the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet, unfortunately, this same type of attitude, the same type of focus can be seen in churches of every flavor in this country and around the world. This happens when standards, which is fine to have standards, you need to have your own standards, but when you begin to bind other people to your standards, when they're not clearly described in God's Word, you've gone beyond what God has said, and now you're commanding what men have said rather than what God has said. Listen, was there anything wrong with washing your hands in a, in a way? No. But then to look down upon somebody, to judge somebody, to, to look at them and say, you haven't kept this standard. You have no authority to do that. Our authority is bound to what God has said in His Word. And so we see it, particularly in our circles, in Baptist circles, with the with the presentation of standards of holiness that aren't found in God's Word and elevating them to the level of that which determines spirituality. If someone doesn't follow my prescribed way, then they must be wrong with God. We see it in other religions, particularly in Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism teaches that it's, not, it's ultimately not Christ who saves, it's the church who saves. And as a result of that, they have all sorts of things you have to go through that they speak of as their authority. And so they tie up burdens on people's backs. You know, it's, it's amazing to me if you hear people who have grown up in Catholicism, you, you hear even in media and in, and in entertainment, you'll hear people talk about making jokes about how uh, the Catholic Church really knows how to make you feel bad. That's coming from this burden that they put on people's backs. And what ends up happening is they reject the commandment of God in order to establish their own tradition. And what's, what you're doing there is you're setting aside God's authority and whose authority are you ultimately following? Your own. The authority of men. And so Jesus came and He smashed that idea as one who spoke with real authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. We see in verses 16 through 22 that their authority was not genuine ultimately because they appealed to those traditions rather than God's Word. And in verses 16 through 22, we have Jesus going after their Traditions that were permissive about sin. 
It's really interesting here. At one point, we see the scribes and Pharisees binding people to rules and regulations that God never intended. And in the other point, we see the scribes and Pharisees using legal mumbo-jumbo and providing hoops to jump through so that people can live sinful lives. And particularly, it comes down to whether or not your word means anything. These scribes and Pharisees would say, well, you can swear by the temple and that's no big deal. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, well, then you're bound to what you say. And so essentially allowed this society to exist so that people would say something. And, you know, you're in a conversation and, and somebody asks you to do something. And you say, I swear by the temple, I'll do that. And then, and then you come back and you didn't do it. And it's like, well, I didn't swear by the gold of the temple, so I didn't really mean it. And Jesus brings out the point, he's like, listen, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sanctified? They go on and they say, if someone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if someone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. And Jesus says, again, the same thing, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? And then he makes this point. He says, whoever swears by the altar, he's swearing by everything that's on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it, and here's the thing, and by him who dwells in it. Who is that? Who dwells in the temple? God. And whoever swears by the temple... Or, and whoever swears, I'm sorry, whoever swears by heaven, he, he, there's this intensity that comes. If you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God. And who sits upon the throne of God? God Almighty. And the Pharisees and, and the scribes, they would say, well, you can swear by these things and it, and it doesn't really matter. And essentially, they provided a way for people to break the commandments. What does Jesus say? Thou shalt not what? Lie. And they had found a way around that just so long as you said the right formula. And where did that come from? What authority did they have to do that? None from God. They looked to themselves to do that. And then we see what really motivates them. They do this because they seek financial gain through their teaching while ignoring justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Verses 23 through 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without also neglecting the others. You blind guides, guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Essentially, they did the very, did actually less than the bare minimum in what they were called to do, and instead called other people to fill up the treasuries that they had. And then, and then as a result of that, they heaped unto themselves these riches and they kept them to themselves while people suffered with injustice, where there was no mercy placed upon them, and they were faithless in the way in which they administered the funds in the temple. I mean, how often do we see that today in ministries that 
neglect the weightier things of Scripture and instead seek to fleece God's people by exploiting them through their own teaching. This is what Peter has been talking about. Their authority was also not genuine because they played a part. But inside they're filled with nothing but greed, selfishness, and a rotting corpse of sin. Look at verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy. They played the part. And so, Jesus in this last section shows that they were not genuine because they ended up giving lip service to God's Word and to His messengers, but by their actions, they show that they have no intention of living under His authority. Again, look at the verses 29 through 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous. There was a a movement that they would seek to keep the old ways, keep the old paths, and they would would decorate the the, the, um, tombs of the prophets. They would try to build them up. They would say, this is where... Uh, Isaiah is buried, and they, and they would go there and almost like it was some sort of spiritual experience for them to be in the presence of the bones of the dead prophet while they would neglect the very thing that gave life to them, which was the words of the prophets. They would say, verse 30, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not take part in their shedding of the blood of the prophets. And Jesus is like, yeah, right. He actually says, thus you witness against yourselves because you're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Why does Jesus use such harsh words? Listen to what he's done. It says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town. And so Jesus is actually giving a warning to them. Listen, This is what's going to go down. This is how you're going to act towards my messengers. And of course, the the first example of this happening is who? Christ Himself. What was the crowd's cry before Pilate? Crucify Him. And then, 
What began immediately as the apostles and prophets became that prophetic voice to the people of Israel. What did they do? Did they listen? No. They rushed upon them. They took them outside the city. They beat them. They flogged them. They stoned them. They killed them. They crucified them. And so Jesus says, this is going to happen. You're going to do these things so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, I'm sorry, Barakiah, whom you murdered. And then here's the thing. You murdered him between the sanctuary and the altar. In the temple of God that was meant for his people to meet with him and worship him, they killed the prophets. They killed Zechariah. And what does this show? Why why was there such hostility to the message of the gospel? Why would they act in such atrocious ways? Well, remember Herod? What did he do? He killed babies. Little children, innocent children who had done nothing to him. He killed them all. Why? Because it was a threat to his own autonomy and authority. Why does the gospel today, why has the gospel for millennia elicited such violent responses from people because it tells them they are not the authority. Christ is. People do not want to give up their sovereignty. And so they kill the messengers of God Himself. They give lip service to the Bible. Oh, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have done what they did. And the irony of that statement is, is that in just a week after Jesus makes this statement, they're going to kill Him. They're going to kill God in the flesh. So, in great contrast to the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus came with the very authority of God Almighty. He came as king, speaking his edicts to his people. Where does he have this authority? Well, from the Father. In John chapter 12, 47 through 50. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to, what? Save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, 
what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment, His commandment, is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. There is going to be a day where we will stand before God and we will give an account for how we submitted our lives to His Word. The primary word of Christ is those words that we saw in Mark 1 as He began His ministry. What did He call His people to do? Repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. That, that commandment. Notice, Jesus doesn't say that with the sense of like, well, I really hope you will. It's a command. Repent and believe. And so the world is faced with a decision. Will you bow the knee to the authority of Christ or will you continue following your own way? And on the final day, we will stand before God and we will all be judged based upon that word. The word of Christ. And so, as Jesus sends out His disciples, He makes this statement to them. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so the words of Christ are given with full authority. The authority of the King. The question is what will we do with it? Will we bow our knees? He's not suggesting it. It's not optional. He commands it. He's the King. He has the right to command it. And then the last few verses, the last three verses of Matthew chapter 23 show the tenderness of our Savior. You know, as, as you read through the previous part of this chapter, Jesus does not mince words. He's harsh. And he does that, he speaks in that way because he's, he's seeking to be gracious to his hearers. You say, how can it be gracious that he calls them a brood of vipers? He calls them blind fools. How can that be gracious? Because he's trying to wake them up. Why do I say that? Look at verses 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that, again, is not known as the dwelling place of God on, on earth, which is what it was meant to be. Rather, what is Jerusalem known as? The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Look, see, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is preaching this sermon, and this is the conclusion. Look at what you've done. 
He's calling these hardened hearts to repent and to come to Christ as King. But he knows that many will persist in the hardness of their hearts. And so he tells the crowds, he tells the scribes and the Pharisees, listen, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think there's a lot for us to consider here this evening. And while Christ's words are primarily focused at the teachers of Israel, the application for us in our own lives is, are we bowing the knee to Christ as King in every aspect of our life? Because any time we don't do that, we rise up in rebellion against our King and we say our authority is better than His. And that brings nothing but disaster. May we say with full sincerity of heart, Jesus is Lord. He is our King. And may that be evident in every aspect of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth we find in it. Thank You for Christ's Word here. And may we meditate on and consider what it was said here to this evening and what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees. May we bow our knees to your kingship. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.